Hi, I'm Amy Silverman, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. The following show wrapped up our fourth season. The theme, Secrets. We hope you enjoy these true stories. First up, Robbie Sherwood Mines Childhood Memories for Best Friends. Greg was a new kid. He moved to my small hometown of Springerville, Arizona as we were entering the second grade. For a while, he and I were best friends. His dad was a construction foreman, which caused them to move around a lot. That's how they ended up in the small mobile home court just off Main Street where I lived. Greg's family followed his dad's jobs, living well but light, not putting down roots. That seemed like a much cooler reason to live in a trailer park than mine, which was poverty. Greg was a smiley kid. We were all short, but he was a little shorter. He had an olive tan complexion and straight golden brown hair that hung down neatly to his eyes in one of those bowl cuts that didn't make it out of the 1970s. Sometimes new kids would show up to school and nobody wanted anything to do with them. But Greg had confidence and above average charisma for a little dude, and everyone liked him right away. I frankly felt kind of lucky that he lived in my neighborhood as my own popularity was subject to severe peaks and valleys. We didn't seem to have tons in common other than proximity. Greg's fastidiousness contrasted with my loosey-goosey sloppiness. His parents kept his hair neat and his clothes clean. My hippie older sisters wouldn't let my mom cut my hair at all. I wasn't completely feral, but I did look a lot like Mowgli from Jungle Book. In my second grade picture, my hair is all over the place and I'm wearing a threadbare Snoopy t-shirt with a stain and a hole in the chest. My mom, a recent divorcee who made her living tending bar at night, must have missed the memo about picture day. I don't remember exactly how Greg and I bonded. It just sort of happened since we, he lived two doors down, walked to school along the same route as I did, was in the same class as me, and walked home at the same time. I must have mentioned that my after-school routine was to run home and watch the Brady Bunch and Mickey Mouse Club. Greg let it be known that he also loved those shows, and after that we hung out every day. We'd sometimes fall in with a loose-knit group of boys who lived around the area, mostly poor and Hispanic, but usually it was just us two, riding bikes, playing army men, reading Archie comics, and shooting at the empty wooden warehouse that abutted our yards with bows and arrows and wrist rocket slingshots. Lucky for us, this was before society concluded that arming seven-year-olds with deadly projectile delivery systems might be a bad idea. (laughs) Greg liked me, I suppose, because I had a bit of a wild side. I was well-loved as a child, but virtually unsupervised much of the time. So when he came over, as he preferred to do, the limits to our adventures were only our imaginations. Greg could live on the edge because no one was going to tell us no. I liked Greg because he was normal. He wore new clothes and rode a new bike. He had two parents at home and stories about all the cool, exotic, and mysterious places he had been, 
like California. <laughs> on the other hand, it was dawning on me that most everybody else in my life was somehow unusual, even in a town full of oddballs like Springerville. For instance, unlike mine, Greg's dad was not a graying World War II veteran. He only saw on weekends who mumbled to himself about, quote, that goddamn fucking corrupt cocksucker Richard Nixon. <laughs> and when we were at Greg's trailer, he didn't have to weave in and around older sisters taking bong hits on the couch with their long-haired boyfriends who could lapse into scary Vietnam flashbacks at any time. While Greg was an only child, I would eventually learn that I was a love child, which would help explain the nine-year gap between me and my closest sibling, and perhaps also my bond with Greg, since it was like having a brother my own age. Greg and I were both in Mrs. Pace's class. Mrs. Pace was married to a well-known paleontologist, allegedly, since we had never actually seen the man, who had dug up the bones of a prehistoric mammoth and a giant three-toed sloth in a canyon about 15 miles north of town. She told us his discovery had been displayed in the Smithsonian. Mrs. Pace had a second home in Phoenix, where her alleged husband stayed because he taught at Arizona State University. One day in the spring, Mrs. Pace proposed an out-of-town overnight field trip where the kids and adult cha chaperones would sleep at her house and spend the day touring the Phoenix Zoo. This trip would be the peak for Greg and me. Road tripping to Phoenix was wonderful. Greg and I sat together in the back of a station wagon, driven by the mother of a girl named Irina, who I loved at the time. I don't remember the zoo. I just remember all the strange African artifacts inside Mrs. Pace's house, still no sign of Mr. Pace, by the way, <laughs> and laughing and cutting up with Greg and Irina. Little did I know that the whole time Irina was incubating a raging case of chickenpox. Not long after we returned, Irina showed spots and was sent home from school. I went for a few days with no symptoms, but then one morning during class, my knee started to itch. I rubbed and scratched the spot throughout the day, but otherwise kept the situation a secret. That night, I looked and could see eight to ten red welts just below my right kneecap. The more I scratched, the more they itched. Nevertheless, I put on my pajamas and went to bed. The next morning, the itching was making me crazy. Also, a disgusting drainage had soaked through my pajama leg, turning it from white to yellow. That's when I finally broke down and told my mother. She asked to see the spot, so I lifted my pajama bottom and showed her my knee. She gasped, oh my God, you have the chicken pox. I was still skeptical. <laughs> my mom was a bartender, not a doctor. <clears throat> and I had places I needed to be. <laughs> but then she raised up my shirt. Somehow overnight, and without me realizing it, the spots had spread across my whole torso. This time we both shrieked. I was soon covered head to toe by painful pustules and missed two full weeks of school. It's not written down here, but I even had one in my eyeball. So gross. <clears throat> I was so mad I broke up with Irina. The <laughs> thus depriving her of the realization that we were ever going out. 
Two things happened around this time that weakened my friendship with Greg. First, his family moved to a different trailer park about a mile outside of town. Apparently, they got a better deal and and jumped on it. And then Greg also got sick. He wasn't in school when I got back. I figured that he had the chicken pox too. But since he didn't live nearby anymore and we didn't have a phone, I wasn't sure. When I finally saw him again after several weeks, the school year was nearly over. He told me that it was not the chicken pox, but that he had been very sick. I asked him what was wrong, but he didn't want to say. He just told me that he was feeling a little bit better and asked me if I wanted to come out to his house and play. I said yes, but since my mom would be working and my siblings were not reliable, I would have to bike it. That Saturday, I hopped on my bike and began my journey. Greg's new trailer was about two and a half miles from mine, which is far for seven-year-old legs to pedal even without hills. The worst part, though, was the last mile, a long stretch of open highway with no buildings and no trees for shade, but plenty of speeding semi-trucks, bugs, and wind that blows in your face the whole way. When I got to Greg's trailer, I was exhausted. He seemed just as tired, so we mostly just hung out reading comics and watching TV. That was nice, but things were different between us. It was mostly on my part, in the form of simmering resentment. That bike ride had really kicked my ass, and if I wanted to get home, I was going to have to do it again. At this point, one might wonder why I didn't ask his parents for a ride or call my mom at the bar. I'll tell you why. It was the 70s. Grown-ups didn't really involve themselves in their shit the way they do now. (laughs) And except on days like this, we all preferred it that way. (laughs) It was nearly dark when I got home, and I was sore from head to toe. I didn't outright resolve to not make another trip out to Greg's place. I just never went again. Nor did I run into him anywhere around town that summer. When school started in the fall, I looked around for Greg, but not with a lot of enthusiasm. It didn't matter. He wasn't there. I thought maybe he'd moved, but nobody offered any explanation. It was deep into the school year when we heard the news. Greg had died. Childhood leukemia. A kid overheard a pair of teachers talking about it and began spreading the word. Eventually, my teacher addressed the class and told us that a little boy who attended our school the year before had, sadly, passed away. Perhaps we might remember him. His name was Greg. At this point in my life, virtually nobody I knew had died. Only one of my grandmothers when I was four, but she was ancient. For the entire time that I knew her, a stroke had reduced her vocabulary to just one syllable, K. Because of that and my age, as awful as it sounds, She never seemed real, not like this. As kids around me cried and carried on at the news about Greg, I still felt strangely distant. I was, however, very curious about this childhood leukemia thing. Like, was it contagious? I already had my brush with infectious disease the year before, and Greg and I had spent a whole lot of time together. Eventually, though, I got in on the act. I couldn't at that moment compute the finality of Greg's death, that I would never see him again, or how much I would miss him. Remorse over how I had disappeared on him had not fully taken hold. 
At that moment, all I wanted was to share the attention, to bask in Greg's glow one last time. He was my friend, I heard someone say, feeling competitive suddenly, and knowing there were no more witnesses to my villainy, I chimed in, well, he was my best friend. That was Robbie Sherwood. Next, Claudia Rodriguez goes on an uncomfortable date, to say the least. We'll let her tell you the rest in Me No Want Cookie. My husband Mike returned home from his friend Ryan's house with his zipper down and two wet spots on either side of his crotch. He was in his usual state after a men's play date, stoned, Giddy, the huge. I asked him about the wet spots and asked if we were in an open marriage. This stoned little bear told me his zipper was broken, declared I was a crazy broad, then scampered off back to his man cave and closed the door behind him. I'm not kidding, I called out through the door. If we're in an open relationship, I just need to know before I lose my looks, I said. Thinking of my marriage made me long for a simpler time, a time when things were less complicated. I could be carefree and reckless. I could drink lots of alcohol and never gain weight. I could eat carbs after 9 p.m. Even technology was less complicated then, a simpler time when landlines were still around, a time when I still had a landline in my dining room. That was about 10 years ago. I remember the last personal call I received on that phone. The phone didn't have caller ID, so when I chose to randomly answer it, there was a surprise on the other end. Before I married Mike, I contemplated a relationship with the guy who had Cookie Monster as his MySpace profile photo. <laughs> he called me on the landline. Hello? Hello, is this Claudia? Yes, it is. Who's calling? It's me, Kyle Matthews. Kyle Matthews, now there's a blast from the past. I used to call him Cookie. He owned a strip club. He also ran some kind of side business out of this converted house in an industrial area. I knew the area well because my screen printing business was sandwiched between an Entenmann's bakery outlet and a fascination sex shop two blocks over over at 19th Avenue, Peoria. Cookie invited me to his office for lunch one day. His office building definitely stood out amongst the tire shops, electronics repair shops, used car lots mixed in with the meth addicts sleeping at every corner with their pit bulls. I picked up Sonic for us, a burger for him and chicken nuggets for myself because they're easier to eat, less mess. I wasn't sure if Cookie and I were friends or if it could turn into something more, so I wanted to keep it casual while still wanting my mouth to look attractive. <laughs> Cookie greeted me at the front entrance. The inside of the house was even more confusing than the outside. Everything beige, just a couple of pieces of furniture in the reception area, including a sofa. A counter where a receptionist would sit was empty. 
No computer, no paper, no pens, no post-its, just a conference-style phone with lots of buttons that light up. Cookie walked me through a hall to his office. I was relieved when he opened the door and nothing was out of sorts. Large CEO desk in the middle of the room, conference phone, sofa, and a giant monitor on the middle of the desk. I sat on the sofa and he sat behind me. I sat on the sofa and he sat behind the desk watching the monitor, shoving the burger into his face. What are you watching? I asked. He turned the monitor in my direction and I could see every room in the house captured on surveillance, each room broken into square sections on the screen. In one square, I could see a brunette woman wearing a black bustier, thigh highs, and garters standing behind the reception desk talking to a blue collar type. What's happening right now? I asked. She's about to lose a sale he said as he concentrated on the monitor. How do you know that? And just then, the blue-collar type walked out the front door. I had to pee, but I was afraid to leave my Diet Coke unattended and afraid that me on the toilet would pop up in one of his squares on the screen, so I didn't go. I moved in closer to his desk and sat on the chair beside him, uninhibited by the fact that he might try to recruit me. Can I have a bite of your burger? I asked my new friend. Then I interrogated him for half an hour about his business. Is this legal? How do you find the girls? Craigslist. How do you keep the IRS off your back? Tell me. Don't tell me. When Cookie asked me to dinner, I didn't hesitate. I was single, living my best life, and I didn't know any other criminals, so he seemed a good way to pass the time. For dinner, Cookie met me at a trendy restaurant in Scottsdale. We sat on the patio on the uncomfortable plastic white chairs that looked like something out of a clockwork orange. I ordered an appetizer with vegetables covered in tempura. Then I downed two for each of his one drinks because what else would you do after finding out he was running a prostitution ring out of a converted house at 19th Avenue, Peoria. Tell me about your relationship with these girls. I stirred my gin and tonic. What do you want to know? I don't know what goes on with all of you. Nothing. They're just normal girls. Normal hookers? I'm pretty good at reading people, so I don't get involved with them personally, he said. Hard to believe you read people well, I said. Oh, I know things, he said. What do you know? I know it took you 20 minutes to put yourself together and get dressed for this date, he said. What are you talking about? I pretended he was wrong, yet I was also intrigued because it did take me 20 minutes to get ready for the date. And I know you put makeup over that pimple on your chest, he said. Oh, is this the flaw-sharing part of the evening? I grabbed his arm and pulled it toward me. Not to flirt, but to pull up his shirt cuff to expose the mutilation marks all over his pasty, freckled wrist. He was a cutter. Cookie was straight-up emo and cut himself. Sadly, I could relate to doing this in my teenage years, except we weren't teenagers, and he didn't do a very good job of hiding the blood-red slash marks. 
He dodged my questions about his arms, then spent most of the night trying to convince me we could have some sort of exclusive relationship. I don't know how he thought he could win me over after pointing out my pimple, but I was flattered that a man who surrounded himself with hot naked women with big fake boobs could find me attractive. At that moment, as I stared at the scabs on his wrist, squeezed lime into my drink and thought about its bluntness, I knew this was either the world's worst state or my future husband. His eyes said the same as mine. I'm lonely. My soul, so troubled, so disturbed. No one should ever love me. After dinner, we took a stroll around the water feature in the garden, and I pulled him close and kissed him. We carried on this way for several minutes, making out in front of the petunias. He asked me why I decided to smooch on him, but I couldn't tell him the truth. I couldn't say, you know how a guy will be with any girl he doesn't know or even like very well, and yet he'll still just put it in her? Well, I was kind of feeling that same way, except by put it in him, I just meant my tongue. We kissed some more, and I thought, maybe life with Cookie wouldn't be so bad. He would most certainly make me go to the gym, since he found it necessary to point out all my imperfections. He's a great tipper, so he must have a ton of money. He could pay off my credit card debt. I've always wanted to have a three-way. We'd have countless naked women at our disposal, and strippers always have coke. Totally down for that, too. <laughs> Our daughter would be really exotic looking. Red hair, blue eyes, or else black hair, blue eyes, freckles across the bridge of her nose. We could call her Kyla. I could never be with someone who's surrounded by naked women at their job every day. I said as I kissed his neck, then scooted off at the end of our date and back to my PT cruiser. Anyway, back to the landline. It rang and I picked it up. Hello? Hello, is this Claudia? Yes, it is. Who's calling? It's me, Kyle Matthews. Kyle Matthews, now there's a blast from the past. How are you? He asked. I'm great. You still a pimp? He laughed into the phone and assured me he had retired from the business of exploiting and objectifying women. Then he asked if we could grab a coffee and catch up. I said, I'm married now, Kyle. I'm not allowed to have coffee with strange men. Then he said, I'm not a stranger. Then I said, I didn't say stranger. I thought about how sad and yet endearing Cookie's call had been all those years later after our first and final date. Thinking of that alternative made me think I should appreciate my marriage more. Maybe marriage isn't so bad after all. Even if I've had to have more conversations than I care to about whether or not Katy Perry's boobs are real, maybe my husband is an okay kind of guy with his cute little bear-like existence where he 
emerges from his man cave to eat, love, and graze in the main house with his cute little furry face and his pretty eyes, one hazel, one brown. My husband, Mike, did assure me we are indeed not in an open marriage. And the wet spots on either side of his crotch were from Ryan's dog, Archie. Claudia Rodriguez. Life is like a box of chocolates, and a kid is like origami. At least that's what Robert Rosen found in Unfolding Rennie. On a Tuesday in 1987, my office phone rang. A voice said, we have a little boy who needs a home. The sentence took my breath away. Julie and I had become impatient with nature's resistance to add children to our lives. Deciding to take an alternate route, we applied, submitted the information, and passed the inspection to become a foster parent, foster family. Starting with that Tuesday call, it happened quickly. On Wednesday, we met a smiling, round-faced, three-and-a-half-year-old bowling ball of a boy carrying a frayed teddy bear by one of its arms. Renee came running into the playroom filled with well-loved toys. It was love at first sight for all three of us. Renee rushed to Julie and motioned to her for a boost up into her arms. I took a seat on the floor, grabbed a dingy Tonka truck, and it took several rums to grab Renee's attention away from Julie's hair and glasses. Julie put him down, and he came over to my spot to play. On Thursday, we bought a car seat, a race car bed frame and bed, kid-sized clothes, toothbrushes, no-tear shampoo, and some Raffi cassettes. We hit the grocery store and made some guesses on what a a three-and-a-half-year-old would like to eat. On Friday, Renee's 17-year-old birth mom, Margot, put a faded plastic elephant toy box in the back of our minivan. She lifted Renee up into the car seat and buckled him up, kissed him goodbye, and told him to be good to Mama Julie and Daddy Robert. Margo moved next to Julie and whispered to her, the life you're giving him is what I needed. She stepped away and waved as we pointed the van towards home. We were parents for the first time, even if it was just foster parents. As we drove home, Julie looked at me and back at Renee. Renee responded with a big smile, grabbed a colorful toy harmonica next to him, held it like a gun, and went, pow, pow. Julie and I burst out laughing. A topic of conversation on our way over was about banning war toys to the already growing collection of playthings. Julie and I were the babies in our families. We didn't know shit about kids, let alone about living and raising one. All we had were preconceived ideas and a short note from Margot that told us that he did not like green food and would tell us what he wanted by pointing. 
Renee was an extremely happy little boy, affectionate with an easy, tiny laugh, a hearty appetite, and quickly comfortable with adults and dogs. He was monosyllabic, calling himself nay, and relying on pointing to communicate. He knew to put his hands together when he was at church. He loved the predictability of bedtime for brushing his teeth, saying night-night to the dogs, and curling up with both of us and a book for the five minutes it took to begin his long night's rest. We learned what we could about Renee's life. The last place he lived was a teen shelter. Margot was 14 when she gave birth to him. She was kicked back and forth between her parents and relatives' homes. At 15, she was pregnant again and got married. She had then a third son at 16. The marriage didn't last long, and at 17, she found herself losing custody of her two younger children and struggling to make it through a day. She knew it was time to give up her oldest son to a family who could provide a future for him. Renee was loved, but neglected in health care and education. Chronic ear infections left him hearing only muffled sounds. We entertained him in crowded county medical waiting rooms, culminating with a set of ear tubes. This intervention made an instant difference, not just in his hearing, but in his eyes and in his smile and his fascination with everything he could now hear. Words and how to say them were no longer hidden. His speech and vocabulary built quickly with the help of a speech therapist. In the evenings, he was allowed to stay up as late as he wanted as long as he was talking. Ten months later, after we first met Renee, adoption papers were signed. His new birth certificate said his name was now Rennie Rosen and that we were his parents. Rennie made us a family. When you have biological children, their looks their movements, along with their laugh, their speech patterns, and the physical and academic gifts are not such a huge surprise. For adopted children, it's all a surprise. The unfolding of the origami of Rennie was unfamiliar. When he was small, I so wanted to crawl into his head to see how it worked. When he was a teenager, I wanted to crawl in there again, but this time just to tighten a few of the loose bolts that were in there, but more on that later. <laughs> Unlike his parents, Rennie was stronger and faster and more coordinated than his peers. His athletic gifts dominated throughout his adolescence. After seasons in soccer and football and karate, he found his way to a dance studio. Here, he found a place where his natural skills shined the brightest. Julie and I, with four left feet between us, had nothing more to offer than a taxi service and cheering at recitals. If anyone made fun of him, of his ballet skills, Rennie would shame them by challenging them to perform a pirouette alongside of him. In spite of his gifts... Rennie's growing up came with insecurity and difficulty to bond. 
In his drive to be more, he invented stories about himself and me as well. Early on, there were stories about me being a CIA spy, which I'm not. Later, there were claims about being in music videos and movies, which he was not, and being hit by lightning multiple times, which never happened. We have family jokes referencing the stories he made up. When Rennie turned 16, we received a large envelope addressed to him and us from the adoption agency. Rennie's origin story was part of our family narrative. He knew he was adopted and shared photos from, and he, and we had, had, he knew that we had photos from his first days with us. He never had questions about his birth parents. He seemed satisfied with the little information we knew. What we did see was his deepening opinions against abortion and premarital sex as he grew into his teens. The three of us unpacked the envelope together. Here were 13 years of birthday cards and letters from Margot asking question after question about his life. At 16, it took threats and bribes to get Rennie to read and write for school assignments, but this day was different. Rennie immediately began writing a return letter. The words poured out of him like water through a fire hose. It was 10 pages describing his life, his interests, his hopes. It expressed a longing to know more about Margot and a question, more like a plea for any information about his birth dad. There were holes in Rennie's self-esteem and a longing we had never seen before for answers to secrets kept from him. In the months and years that followed, Margot and Rennie established a relationship, at first with letters and then phone calls and later visits. Margot's history unfolded with stories of health challenges, a house burning down, a preteen daughter she was raising herself, and a career as a long-haul trucker. Information on Rennie's birth father was sketchy, with only a first name and, the, and, being, and him being a classmate of Margot's at the time. Much later, Margot would move in with Margot, I mean, Rennie would move in with Margot after his tour in the Navy and join her as a partner in over-the-road trucking. Julie and I met adopting parents and adopted people as we networked with friends, coworkers, and people we met along the way. We heard a common story among a few adopted people willing to share their stories. Many of them, as teenagers and young adults, confessed to being a hot mess, directionless, listless, and hurting. They would go on to explain that it took confronting feelings of being rejected by their birth family and abandonment to turn, to, to turn things around. They had to confront those issues. This was a revelation to Julie and me. Rennie's maneuvering through his later teens and young adulthood was fraught with challenges. There was running away and begging to come back. There were loser friends, poor judgments, and being victimized by thieves. These were behaviors we could neither support nor solve with tough love or counseling. 
the instincts we the the insights we had from other adopted people helped fill the gap on what was going on with our son. I'm relieved to tell you that Rennie made it to the other side of his personal unfolding as an adult. He's a married man today, gainfully employed with a loving wife, raising two brilliant children, my grandchildren, and is a warm and wonderful son. There's one more part of the unfolding of Rennie that I want to share. Two years ago, Rennie, then living in Texas, called and asked if Margot could park her car in the driveway for a few weeks as she was on her way to Phoenix to pick up a rig. The last time we had seen Margot was for five minutes, 30 years ago. Before dropping her car off, we met for lunch at barbecues, ironically, on Mother's Day. We got there first. We looked up, and there was Margot walking towards us with a gait that we immediately recognized as Rennie. In front of us was a 47-year-old version, version of our beloved son. Everything about Margot was familiar. Here was Rennie's smile, his shoulders, his hands, and even his hairline, his voice and inflections, his laugh, his sighs were coming from Margot. Emotions spilled over into tears as we thanked Margot, as we thanked Margot for her bravery, her generosity that made us a family. Margot choked up seeing the answers to 30 years of questioning her decision and surviving through days and years of regret and doubt. We toasted to the joint love of our shared son. Of all the secrets that ever unfolded about Rennie, seeing Margot was the most revealing of all. Thank you. Patience Woolridge is next with another tale of love gone wrong in Let's Be Honest. It was 4.37 on a Monday morning. I was sitting in my car halfway between my house and my lover's apartment, seething, contemplating whether to continue home or turn back and address the issue. I'm very much the type that feels love can solve all things with a heartfelt discussion, followed by a hug and maybe even a cocktail afterwards. But no magical embrace or specially crafted Mai Tai could fix this. It was about two years into a tumultuous on-and-off relationship between two heterosexual females, fresh out of tumultuous on-and-off relationships with two other heterosexual females. She and I, we'll call her Danielle, had been great friends for nearly a decade and knew there was no way it would be the same outcome of chaos and rage as our previous flames. Yes, all four of us had been friends since college. Yes, we all identified ourselves as straight, despite undercover erotic activity. Yes, two of us were on the women's basketball team, and we know college athletes have their fair share of sexcapades. And yes, we were part of a campus Bible study where maybe one of us was in the process of becoming an ordained minister of a denomination that didn't really support same-sex relationships? Maybe. But yes. We both ultimately wanted the typical family structure. Married, 
to a man with some kids and a dog with a house and a picket fence. Even though I seemingly forfeited that dream when I ended an engagement to a man a couple years prior, I knew, I'd re- re- I knew I would return to that heteronormative aspiration at some point. I just wanted to sow some super scandalous wild oats before returning to the path of righteousness. <laughs> to provide some moral context, I grew up in a somewhat stable, pretty Baptist household. Having three older, haphazard siblings, I basically grew up with one job, do better. And having graduated from college with honors and a degree in graphic design, I was well on my way. Jumping back to the manipulative situationship at hand, straight or not, Danielle and I were together. Since neither one of us were actually gay, there was no, there was, there wasn't much of a concern with homosexual infidelity. We were more like best friends that couldn't get enough of each other and were incredibly comfortable exploring various curiosities. Nevertheless, there was no way she would allow the man of my dreams to interrupt this interim period. What my honest, naive self didn't realize was that she would, she could still shop around for Mr. Right while making sure I didn't go anywhere. Which is how I came to be sitting in my car at 4.37 a.m., halfway between her place and mine. Anyone else probably would have caught on before things got that bad, like after she slept with her ex's ex-boyfriend the night before Valentine's Day, or after she went out on a date with this curly-haired caramel skin heartthrob while I was conveniently out of town and called it a business meeting, yet it was on a weekend at a fancy steakhouse with live jazz after 9 p.m., But no, I didn't start to catch on until my birthday. Outside of Danielle's regular job of being a nurse, she had started this venture to help out underprivileged youth and give them opportunities to help create more healthy, self-sufficient lives. Like any other caring best friend or lover, I was there from day one helping out and being her right-hand woman. So, a few of us from her nonprofit organization attended this swanky charity event that was on my actual birthday, including her curly-haired, caramel-skinned business buddy. And since it was a Friday, a handful of us went out afterwards for salsa dancing and drinks. Alas, I was the only one without a dancing partner, and the only one to go home solo. I was pretty sure they converted the salsa dancing into a horizontal tango that night, uh, so there was no way I was going to subject myself to Saturday sloppy seconds. I kept myself entertained and distracted most of the day, but once I got over giving the silent treatment, I went ahead and shut out some fiery, hope the sex was good, we're so done, erase my number text that evening. That snowballed into yelling and arguing per usual, but once the swirling words of disdain subsided the next day, there was a half-assed effort to try and salvage the remnants of my birthday weekend. The Sunday was superficially enjoyable, We had an early dinner since we both needed to get ready for the week, and I agreed to come to her place after she finished touching base with a few sponsors from the event. But I hadn't forgotten what took place after that night's festivities. I may have quenched the external fury for the sake of courteous pleasantries, but that internal outrage smoldered. When I got there, I was able to play it cool, even in my suspicion, and simply waited till she fell asleep before beginning the investigation. If being a design student taught me anything, it was how to stay awake at any cost. If it taught me two things, it was how to hack my way through problems. Therefore, I was a veteran user of both the iPhone and MacBook, 
So maneuvering my way through their operating systems was cake. Who has time for passcodes when you can simply download iMessage history directly to your machine? I found out a few gut-wrenching things, including what happened not even a full hour before I'd gotten there that night. Apparently, her curly-haired caramel skin side piece had left only moments before I got there. It only made sense that he being the touching base she was referring to. There was a volcano eruption at each of my extremities, and boiling lava quickly infiltrated the very essence of my being. I got in my car and left. I stopped after I realized me swerving from the overwhelming excruciation had a high probability of me getting pulled over at 4.37 a.m. I sat, fuming, trying to figure out what action could be taken to match the overwhelming excruciation. Since I didn't own a firearm, a sword, or a chainsaw, <laughs> I settled for a pretty extreme, deep-cutting, exceptionally graphic text message and called it a night. Can't quite remember work the next morning, just that I didn't make it through the day since they typically send home people that look like death or look like they may cause death. <laughs> there was no way I could let this heartless, deceitful, selfish, selfish excuse of a human being walk away as if, no as if nothing happened. However, Danielle was kind of a big deal in her world, so it wouldn't take much for me to make everything crumble. Her nursing job was at night. Since us designers don't sleep, we spend a good chunk of her shifts on the phone. The number of HIPAA violations were unspeakable and enough for her to be banned from any hospital, even as a patient. <laughs> Not only was I the creative director of her precious nonprofit, I was basically the chief technology officer, meaning every email, all financial records, every, the entire website, and even the 501c documentation could be vaporized with the same effort as Thanos. And if I wanted to get really personal, I could easily tell her overly religious family what sort of shenanigans we were up to in the middle of the night. I could explain to her little siblings who worshipped her what two females do in the bedroom. I could tell her parents how many dildos had been purchased at various sex shops. I could even airdrop some X-rated photos to her beloved grandparents whom she idolized. Or, or... I could simply share all of the above with the clergy that was responsible for whether or not she would be ordained as a minister. Not all of these revelations came to me immediately. It was only after, it was only with time and patience that I realized how easily I could permanently disfigure her very existence. And for some strange reason, holding that amount of power, yet practicing restraint provided both a pride and a level of peace that allowed me to return to sanity. Running wild with my own maniacal imagination was intensely satisfying, and even with the tensions that arose when we did cross paths, I knew who had all the control. Despite the fact that there might be as many women as men on my list of celebrities I'd sleep with today, regardless of my personal situation, I'm so not a lesbian. I have my own curly-haired, caramel-skin heartthrob of boyfriend, even though his curls are in the form of dreadlocks. We've been together a couple of years, and he knows that if the opportunity to... If the opportunity presented itself with Jenna Monet, Shirley Steron, Angela Bassett, Brene Brown, or Lupita Nyong'o, I would have no hesitation. At least I'd like to think so. But at the end of the day, yours truly is strictly dickly.
Communications, Woolridge. And finally, Cindy Dash ties up loose ends in all the most important ways with a piece called Threads. When I was seven, my grandmother tugged at her earlobe and said to me, you see these diamond earrings? When I die, these are yours. When I was nine, my grandmother said, when you grow up, never be a wife. Be a mistress, because mistresses get jewelry, wives darn socks, and sometimes mistresses also get a nice apartment and a high-rise downtown. My grandmother was born in Russia in 1910. When she was an infant, her father immigrated to the United States for opportunity for the bootstraps that we used to offer. We took, he took a boat to America to find his brother-in-law in Detroit, who gave him a job as a carpenter. He sent money for his wife and child to join him, but my great-grandmother wasn't that interested in leaving Russia. She taught dance, was close to her parents, and had a secret love interest. Seven years later, Due to the pogroms and racism, my great-grandmother and my seven-year-old grandmother left Russia by the way of Japan. In Japan, when they ran out of money, my great-grandmother pulled out her sewing kit, sat on overturned buckets, and darned socks for the American soldiers. They earned enough money to take a boat to America and find my great-grandfather. He was with the mistress, who didn't realize she was a mistress. The situation sorted itself out, and my great-grandparents had four more children. <laughs> my grandmother was fierce and determined and helped raise her four younger siblings. She became a wife, a mother of two, my mother and her brother, a successful interior designer, a divorcee, a woman known for her dinner parties, a mother who survived the death of a child, and a skilled poker player. My grandmother and I adored each other. When I was young, I wanted to be a businesswoman like her. I loved going to the design showrooms. She was known as the lady with the fancy hats, which she did intentionally to be remembered. We would select fabrics for the couches and pillows of her clients, or at least I believed I had a say in all of that. When I was 11, my grandmother told me that I should not be a virgin on my wedding night because that would be a terrible time to find out that my husband did not know what he was doing. My father was furious with her advice. <laughs> My father was a very religious man. We had an orthodox kosher home. We did not speak of virginity or the lack of it. My sexual life was up to my future religious husband. My grandmother was a non-observer and sometimes sinful. My father was a fundamentalist at heart. However, he was a businessman and this was their bond. They admired each other and often sought advice in areas of business. My grandmother told me that it was just as easy to marry a rich man as a poor man. I just needed to find that right circle of friends. My father mostly agreed but insisted that that circle should be connected to a synagogue. My grandmother instructed me to always have my own income because a rich husband could take a mistress. My father did agree with the first part. In college, I pursued a business degree, and before graduating, I had a position as a salesperson in a fabric company. I was the first female salesperson hired at that firm, and the established male clients would say to me, I got ties older than you. I was 22, I was living in New York in a rent-controlled apartment in Soho. I had a good income, 
I had a fantastic wardrobe, mostly bought at sample sales. My favorite part of my job was walking through the fabric warehouses, getting sample cuts for my clients. I loved the colors. I loved touching the textiles. It was the most inspiring part of each day. My grandmother had retired and moved to Florida. She was remarried, going on cruises, and still assisting some clients, those that had followed her to Florida. We didn't see each other as often, but she was incredibly proud of what I was becoming. We spoke on the phone, and I would mail her fabric samples that she would turn into tablecloths for her dinner parties. Within four years, I hated my job. I loathed the drama of contract negotiations. I was resentful when tempers flared because of a snowstorm that delayed fabric getting to a cutting room floor. The industry was dominated by men who slammed down phones and kicked doors. It was decades before the Me Too movement, and sexual harassment was a way of doing business. I was 26 and I wasn't prepared. I had financial freedom, but no solid footing. I took a vacation out west, and I decided that there, in all that space, I could find myself. I could be a woman who hiked and camped. I returned to New York, and without talking to any family or any friends, I walked into my office and gave 30 days notice. I was moving out west, I told my parents the following weekend. What was I going to do? Every single person asked. I was going to hike and become a writer. I announced it like a spell had been cast, and thus it was true. I loved to read, I loved stories, and I figured if I just worked hard, I could be a well-published, self-supporting author. I took my commission check, my great wardrobe, bought a Jeep, and drove west. My grandmother was furious. My father was flustered. I had everything going for me, and there I was throwing it away so I could go camping. I applied and was accepted to an MFA program for creative writing. My commissions paid for that graduate program. I then boomeranged for the next 10 years, trying to find out that balance between talent, purpose, and maintaining a roof over my head. I was a freelance writer, wrote a novel, earned money as a photographer, worked as a cater waiter, a bartender, a teacher in a hippie alternative high school, taught Comp 101, 102, and worked as a gardening assistant trimming the heads off of pansies. I liked to hike, but I discovered that I much preferred a bed with a hot tub to actual camping. I was 28 when my grandmother died. The first flight back east was the following morning. The man that would eventually become my husband took me ice skating. He had never met my grandmother, but had listened to my stories and said that ice skating seemed appropriate. I was living my life picking and choosing from my grandmother's advice. I was not a virgin, my f but my future husband did not come from money. I had never found that circle of friends. I was self-supporting, but I was barely hanging on. When my grandmother died, my mother inherited the diamond earrings as originally prescribed. I inherited my grandmother's wedding band, a beloved necklace, and yards and yards of fabric samples. I eventually found my balance in bookstores and events and management and a way to make a living through the power of words and community. The last five years of my father's life was spent in and out of hospitals. <clears throat> he had cancer 
His cancer had come with experimental surgeries, which led to emergency room visits and overnight stays. My mother would call and I would fly home. In his hospital rooms, we sat in silence. My father and I had a difficult relationship. He was a good man and he had always provided, but our religious differences was a tear too large to mend. I sat in those hospital rooms to give my mother a break. I sat in those hospital rooms because my father deserved not to be alone. Sometimes, breaking the silence, he would ask about my life. How many cats do you have? <laughs> or, are people still buying books? I would ask, how are the Yankees doing? <laughs> the answers were always the same. The Yankees were always doing great, and I always had cats. It was difficult sitting in that silence. I tried to read books, but there were disruptions, a sudden question from my father, a nurse taking blood, or the television playing conservative news. The tea party was all the rage. When I could, I went for walks. Memories of my former self materialized on street corners and evaporated down avenues. I went to the fabric showrooms and treated myself to the color and the textures. I thought of my grandmother and my great-grandmother, and not wanting to leave them behind, I purchased fabric, thread, and embroidery hoop. And in my father's hospital room, I taught myself how to embroider. My father died at home under the care of hospice. I inherited his film camera, his dog tags from the Korean War, and a leather briefcase with a broken clasp. These objects are on a shelf in my studio. I have no use for them, but I cannot dispose of them. And it's not even the sentimentality of them. It's the stories that they hold, the ones that no one ever hears. I continue to embroider. It helps me be still. It helps me stop working after a long day. It brings my grandmother, my father, and my great-grandmother into my world. My husband makes me custom frames, and I sell some of my pieces. I've even seen them on the walls of strangers' homes, secretly holding my threaded history. My mother lives in Brooklyn, but she winters in Florida in a 55-plus active living community. They have art classes, movie nights, and bus rides to shopping centers. They have regularly non-scheduled estate sales or estate giveaways. When I last visited, we went to an apartment where the family had asked the maintenance company to give it all away. My mom took a glass-blown vase and a swivel chair. We examined the silverware, the family portraits, needlepoint pillows alongside the bedpans and the oxygen tanks. And I became overwhelmed by my mother's future passing. I was sad that one day I will wear my grandmother's earrings. And I had to step outside to catch my breath. Because there would be so many things. There would be so much stuff left behind. I have no children. I have no nieces or nephews. And one day, my father's briefcase, my grandmother's fabrics, my mother's vases, and my embroideries will all be sifted through by strangers. Some items will be selected for a new origin story. Other things, stuff, will go to the thrift stores or the landfill, and their stories will go silent. One day, someone will wear my grandmother's diamond earrings, and they will never know that they had been promised to me when I was seven.
Cindy Dash. And that's it for this episode of the Barflies Podcast. Special thanks to my co-curator Katie Bravo, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. Learn more about Barflies, including upcoming workshops and performances at barflies.org.